Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. Apparently, this is how they retaliate when you report facts they don't like. This White House does not seem to value an independent press. There is a word for that line of thinking. The word is un-American. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. I'm Galadriel. I have a glowing orb for you. It will be presented in a ritual that conjures Stonehenge with Saudis and Motley Crue. Okay, put glowing orb, Saudis, and Donald Trump into Google if you don't know what I'm talking about because this has to be seen to be believed. Okay, Trumpcast is the show about the man who never mentioned the word Israel. Did you see that? How he drew out the syllables, performing this hard eye contact with dozens of cameras as Israel's prime minister stood by at that brief press conference in Jerusalem yesterday? Yep. Trump spoke in that make-no-mistake way with notes of that old tune, I did not have sexual intercourse with that woman. And if cameras can cringe, these cameras did. And Benjamin Netanyahu's stony face, it was even more stony than ever. And he hugged his arms around him, those very arms that he said would be open to Trump and welcome him one day earlier. Of course, this video ricocheted around Twitter because, of course, in mentioning that he didn't mention Israel, Trump mentioned Israel, seeming to confirm that the state secrets he had blabbed to the Russian ambassador did not just point to Israel, but belonged to Israel. OK, so this foul will be lost before the week's over. That's my prediction. It's yet another Trumpish calamity that's writ on the water of our era's choppy news seas. But that Israel slip does indicate that Trump cannot seem to keep a secret to save his life, his actual professional life. Blab, blab, I fired Comey to get him off my back. Blab, blab, I was smart not to pay taxes. Blab, Israel, blab, nuclear codes. Blab, blab, I could shoot someone in the street and not lose voters. (sighs) So today we are talking about blurting and blabbing and how this liar president, so-called liar president, also is honest just when you least expect it. He seems to be the most pathologically unsecretive president we've ever had. So I published a piece in Politico this week about our blabby president, but my guest today can really take this conversation about blurting and state secrets to a new level. He's Daniel W. Dresner, a professor at the Fletcher School, 
He writes the spoiler alerts column at The Washington Post, and he's the author of a book called The Ideas Industry. But first, our president. Folks, folks, just so you understand, before everyone leaves, just so you understand, I never said or mentioned the word Israel during my meeting with the Russians, okay? So, just to be clear, the Russians still don't know that it was Israel who's the source of our information. Our secrets are safe. Okay, and for the record, I never showed the Russians this map. Or where our deep cover assets are. I would never do that, okay? I get the best intel. I do. I would never jeopardize it. Our deep cover agents are the best. The best. Here's a photo of one of them that I never shared with the Russians. And look at that. This guy has infiltrated deep inside the Islamic State and provides us with great intel. Take a look at that face. Hmm? Tough guy. Tough guy. We have the best guys, I have to tell you. But Lavrov doesn't know about him because I never showed this picture to the Russians in the Oval Office. Okay. We're going to go. The prime minister here is halfway through telling me about a tremendous operation in Mosul that's going to yield a lot of great stuff. Believe me. Believe me. Dan, I want to scroll up thread for a second of in the Trumpian calamities of the past, I was going to say two weeks, but let's just call it an eternity. Yes. Is that okay with you? That's totally fine. I think we can t- call this the endless age of Trump. All right, good. So back to the revelation on May 15th. And God, that's almost 10 days ago. Trumpcast is becoming like some creaky quarterly journal that's still parsing the Iran-Contra affair. We're talking about <laughs> May 15th. Anyway, back to the revelation in the Washington Post that Donald Trump blabbed state secrets to the Russian ambassador that day after he fired James Comey. And then later, uh, we learned that he told the Russians Comey was a nut job and was he was relieved to have that nut job off his back because the whole Russia collusion hysteria is like some Barnum-like invention of fake media. Right, Sergey? Am I right? Oh, and did I tell you about Israel? Anyway, obviously, this is interesting and galling to me to parse from the point of view of who is this man. But it also has consequences for your area of expertise, foreign policy. My question for you is, how are, does our blabby president actually, how is he actually shifting geopolitics when he discusses our intelligence on ISIS and then yesterday seems to finger Israel just definitively as a source of that intelligence? Well, let's just start with the obvious. This is just so friggin' embarrassing. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, that's the, 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 the first thing to realize is that essentially we have a president who is possibly the most untutored man in history when it comes to international relations. And therefore, I, I guess the, w- the way to put it is that in some ways, 
he has no idea what he's saying in terms of the import of it, which is why I suspect he's actually surprised by some of the, the reactions he's getting to the things he does, because he doesn't see himself as having any kind of ill will towards anyone. And I've never seen anyone, a politician like this, with, with as little theory of mind as Trump, in the sense of Trump, in his own mind, thinks he's completely innocent and therefore can't understand why anyone else would think of him in any other way. Um, so as a result, all of his interactions are completely above board. But yes, obviously what he did in this case was he clearly, you know, speaking to the Russians, apparently gave code word clearance information that without intentionally revealing sources and methods, clearly outed the likely source of this intelligence. And furthermore, it wasn't a source that the United States had, but rather it was from an allied country, and now we know that apparently it was Israel. What did that? What does that conversation look like? What is code word intelligence? And what would be, because I only have, because my source for all this is Homeland. I try to really protect my source. Oh, that's bad. No, but no, I'm no, revealing no. right now that Carrie Matheson has basically taught me all I know, which is nothing. <laughs> So there's levels of classification in terms of, of intelligence information. You know, there, there's sensitive, which is the lowest level. There's top secret. There's something called SCI, secured compartmentalized information. And that, I believe, and this is where it's not entirely my area of expertise, I'm not sure if code word clearance is one above that or if it's just part of SCI. But essentially, this kind of information is information that is not revealed to to even people with top secrets. So it's basically a need-to-know basis. Now, obviously, the president presumably does need to know, and so therefore he's given it. But this is the kind of information where if you reveal it or you reveal what the information is, the concern is always by showing that you know something, you've also potentially revealed how you know it. And that's always the catch with intelligence. It's why it's extremely hard, among other things, to try to create international regimes or any kind of sort of protocol when it comes to intelligence, this is the same issue, by the way, which makes cyber so difficult to, to regulate. Because if you try to regulate something like cyber, the problem is is that if you, if you as, as a country say, hey, we know you're mucking around in this, the very fact that you reveal, oh, hey, we know you're mucking around in this, indicates what your capabilities are and what your capacities are. So that's why it's always really tough to have this kind of conversation. So Trump, in doing this, you know, was revealing it to a country. And, and to be fair, there are times where you do want to reveal intelligence information, even to the Russians, because, um, you know, we do have common interests in terms of things like counterterrorism or what have you. But the most disturbing part of this to me is the fact that he apparently revealed it just in the sort of casual way of bragging about the intelligence that he has. In other words, this served no useful purpose. Um, it was just information that he revealed, apparently, to sort of show... Uh, how plugged in he is. For some reason, I like picturing Sergei Lavrov's uh, eyebrow raising when he's getting the big news that the president of the United States of America gets great intel. Like, it really is as though he's saying, I can get it for you wholesale or like, I know a guy <laughs> or something. And to speak of more recent events, yesterday, Trump appeared, of course, with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Jerusalem, and in order to clear his name, on totally this, unprompted, totally no one prompted unprompted him on this. But That's he also the part said, that I'm "Truly gobsmacked about." Ah, uh, he also said, "Gather round, you know, everybody. I've got something to say." And in order to clear his name about this conversation with Lavrov, the the Russian ambassador, he said, "I never mentioned the word Israel." 
just in that I never had sex with that woman, Monica Lewinsky, and in that tone. And what that did was instantly, of course, mention the word Israel in the context right. of that conversation. Which had been suspected, by the way, for, for, yeah, I mean, it was sort of an open secret that that was likely the source. But yes, this was the, the cherry on top. But so the reason I bring up Lavrov and Netanyahu is that these are the kind of people that you, as a, you know, foreign policy analyst expert, are more used to seeing as the you know, the type of men who are players in this game, they're, they're poker-faced, they're, they're urbane, they are, you know, in some cases, I mean, Netanyahu, you know, has just about the, the stoniest expression, I, you know, I can imagine, and it became that much stonier when he heard Trump tip their hand about Israel. I mean, and the other thing is he, Netan, someone like Netanyahu or Lavrov, that knows the rules of the game so well they see those tiny trespasses, and right in front of them, it registers with them, oh, we're going off this script. It must be so destabilizing. I would say that, you know, in some cases to them, it's destabilizing. In other cases, I suspect they see it as a massive opportunity. Because essentially what, what Trump has revealed to these people, and, you know, there, there's a whole array of stories. Um, I think the most, I think Politico had one as well, of sort of allies trading conversations with, you know, stories with each other of how do we talk to Trump? How do we, you know, what's the right way to deal with him? And the thing that is becoming very clear is that he is just spectacularly out of his depth when it comes to these things. Now, the problem, I guess, is that for allies and for for potential rivals or adversaries, while it might be the case that Trump is out of his depth, the United States remains a superpower, so it's not like you can walk away from the country. But what it does mean is that increasingly you're seeing that these you know, uh, other leaders are learning the ways in which they can essentially manipulate Trump in much the same way that cabinet officials or White House officials will try to do it. There's a, a colleague of mine, Elizabeth Saunders, who's a professor at George Washington University, who wrote a great paper on essentially how uninformed leaders in foreign policy are actually wind up basically being led by the nose much more by staffers and by by cabinet officials because the cabinet officials know that they have far more leeway because they recognize that the president doesn't know anything. In the case of foreign leaders, what this means is they can literally have a 10-minute conversation with Donald Trump and apparently, at least for the short term, change his mind on things. So Xi Jinping, you know, meeting with Trump in Mar-a-Lago, is somehow able to convince Trump, oh, yeah, did you know that, that Korea was part of China once? And by the way, it's not that easy for China to manipulate North Korea. And he apparently just sort of accepts this prima facie. Now, to be fair, there's times where what he's being told is actually correct, but Trump doesn't know enough to know whether what he's being told is accurate or not. He has no metacognition whatsoever. I guess I take issue with the fact that his ignorance has not so far been kind of elegantly leveraged by the president. So it, there's this a point that I, I keep going back to in my head in this book, uh, The Epistemology of the Closet by Eve Sedgwick. It's a little bit mostly about language, but what she, in a footnote, I think, says about the virtue of speaking only one language and only your language is that everybody else has to speak in a second language when they talk to you. You know, so like Lavrov or Netanyahu or, you know, Angela Merkel, they don't they aren't accustomed to this brutish, you know, 
childish way of talking and thinking and acting. So they have to keep kind of, uh, they're on their toes. That's possible. Although, you know, so there, there's a meme I've been using on, on Twitter where I talk about whether or not you can tell that uh, I'll, I'll believe when Trump is growing into the presidency, when his staff tops, stops talking about him like a toddler, because there's just a massive amount of, of quotes from staffers indicating that there are ways in which he really basically acts like an impetuous child with no constraints, which is not to dispute your premise. You're, you're correct that leaders like Merkel or Xi Jinping or so on and so forth in some ways have to figure out how to deal with someone that lacks you know, any kind of diplomatic uh, savvy or, for that matter, any kind of attention span. On the other hand, we've all had to deal with young children, and while it's, you know, a second language, it's one that you can pick up relatively easily. And in, in that sense, Trump is not a hard person to figure out. You know, basically the way in which you get him on your side is to, and indeed this has been apparently, you know, passed from country to country, is, you know, praise him on his, the size of the Electoral College victory. You know, talk about the fact that he managed to upset uh, Hillary Clinton, and that's a tremendous political accomplishment. You know, talk about how he has, uh, you know, really been a, a game changer in terms of politics, and that we are ready, of course, to, to do deals with him, and also pre- present him with something, you know, that is to, to hit the nail on the head, like a shining, glowing orb of destiny. Some sort of, sort of tacky bauble that looks like an immediate deliverable, that he can proclaim as, you know, getting a good deal done, when in fact, in actuality, it doesn't necessarily amount to that much, and the U.S. seeds, you know, on other sort of major aspects of foreign policy. So we're seeing this, for example, with respect to the U.S. relationship with China, where, um, you know, China has talked about you sort of increasing its, its degree of, of investment into the United States, or loosening somewhat, you know, some trade restrictions, which, by the way, they had already agreed to do. And in return, the Trump administration basically said, okay, we totally recognize one belt, one road, um, and we're not going to do much in the way of phone ops, the sort of uh, uh, free range of navigation in the South China Sea. Um, so essentially, it, it implies that, that Trump can be bought off in terms of foreign policy. And we're seeing it similarly with respect to the Saudi arms deal, which is a significant arms deal, you know, about $100 billion dollars, and in return, essentially, the, the U.S. government now basically backs the Saudi perspective in terms of the war on terror, which uh, is lousy if you're Iran, but great if you are a uh, Sunni authoritarian leader. So, okay, I could do Trump characterology forever, but what are the consequences of this particular tick of Trump's, his blabbing and blurting, that seems to be getting more pronounced as he's on the road, as he's talking to foreign leaders. So my question is about the consequences, but also about who's dealing with him well. In terms of the effects of this, it's still in some ways too soon to tell. I mean, you know, even there was a lot, there's been a lot of hand-wringing about Trump by burning, you know, let's say an Israeli intelligence source. Will that lessen the degree of, of international, you know, cooperation among our allies in terms of intel? And I, I wouldn't deny that it, it certainly casts a pall over it. But on the other hand, a lot of these countries need the U.S. Um, even more than we need them. So the interesting thing about all of this is whether it actually leads to real-world change um, or not. I think what, what you're seeing is, in some ways, a lot of leaders, I suspect, in dealing with Trump, 
probably can, you know, succeed with sort of a, a pleasant interaction and, you know, furthermore, you know, calling him up afterwards to sort of, you know, again, lavish praise on him. That seems to be working. I think Merkel has done that. And I think the Australian Prime Minister Trumbull, you know, both of whom after sort of initial very icy interactions have managed to sort of build something more of a personal relationship with Trump. And that, by the way, is another way in which Trump is is very different from, let's say, Barack Obama, where, you know, Barack Obama was thought to be something of a cold fish in, in international diplomatic circles. Not that he was impolite or anything, but that, that there wasn't that much of a warm bond between Obama and most other elected officials. Trump clearly thinks of foreign policy as personal relationships, which, as someone who studies international relations, makes me blanch a little bit because it's a lot more than that. Um, but that's not nothing either. And so, in some ways, this might prevent leaders who would otherwise be ideologically very opposed to Trump, think someone like Trudeau in Canada or Macron, who was just elected in France, who in some ways probably look at Trump and, and you know, privately might recoil, but now recognize that they have to do, um, you know, sort of public, uh, not public fealty, but exercise basically sort of public rituals in which they demonstrate, you know, support for Trump because he is such a wild card. In terms of, of leaders who I think have done a good job of playing Trump, I would say, I mean, really so far, the, the awards would have to go to uh, Xi Jinping and to King Salman of Saudi Arabia. It's worth remembering, again, Trump's rhetoric about China, not just during the campaign, but even before the campaign, was unremittingly hostile um, with respect to, you know, China's just, you know, taking us for a ride and so on and so forth. And indeed, the striking thing is, is that despite the rhetoric from Trump in which he said he wanted to be more friendly towards Russia and wanted to be more hostile towards China. If you actually take a look and see what this administration has done, they've been much friendlier to China than they have been to Russia. And so I think that no small part of that is due to Xi Jinping um, and the success of the Mar-a-Lago summit, at least from Xi's perspective. And I think part of it also is the other, the other thing that the Saudis and the, the Chinese have in common is that they've used Jared Kushner as sort of a backdoor. One of the elements of this administration, and this does make it somewhat unique, is the recognition that to get to Trump, they have to get to his family, and Jared Kushner is probably the best mark uh, that they can use because Trump seems to rely on him, and furthermore, it's not obvious Kushner knows all that much. You know, on the one hand, there's something calming about the idea that you know, there are at least some people in the world who can get the upper hand on our president who seems otherwise to be, you know, frightening in a runaway train. But then I have to remind myself, we're talking about the Saudis and the Chinese. Right. My concern is not just that some people can do this. My concern is everyone can do uh, this. Yeah. And, and there's every evidence here that Donald Trump is a bad deal maker. You know, we saw this with the health care bill where... You know, it, it became clear that Trump didn't care so much about what was actually in the health care bill, but rather that a bill got passed. He just simply wanted the victory. And you see this transplanted in the international realm where all Trump wants are what foreign policy people often talk about are deliverables, which is before a summit is something going to be agreed upon that, you know, can be proclaimed to the press as something that demonstrates success. Now, this desire for deliverables is hardly unique to Trump. But in some ways, Trump is so focused on the deliverable that he actually doesn't care 
as much about sort of sustaining the relationship, and he doesn't care about the content of the deliverable either, and that's a problem. So the Saudis and the, the, the Chinese have done well in terms of getting things from Trump, and in some ways I think our prior concern to him getting elected was this guy is such a loose cannon and is willing to act like such a madman that he might stumble into a war. My concern now is somewhat different. It's still that we're going to stumble into a war, but for very different reasons. Not so much because Trump was so bellicose that he wound up accidentally stumbling into a conflict. My concern now is that the rest of the world sees Trump as a paper tiger um, who can be rolled over very quickly with flattering language and who, when he does, like, angrily tweet or issue threats, by and large, nothing much comes from it. I mean, Iran was put on notice, what, four months ago? And nothing much has happened. Uh, A lot of tough words towards North Korea, and it hasn't stopped North Korea at all. My concern is that if Trump actually does issue a threat that he intends to actually follow through on, the problem is is that by that point, foreign leaders will look at his words and and think that Trump is simultaneously becoming more predictable and less credible. Ah. And that is a lousy combination for a president. All right. Um, Just to wrap this up, what are your maximalist and sort of minimalist ideas of the damage that might be done on an international scale with this president? Okay, the maximalist damage is Trump stumbles into a war for one of two reasons. The first is is that he is increasingly, this has been one of his consistent policy moves, is that he's delegated enormous authority to Secretary of Defense James Mattis and to the military. And as a result, the military feels far less constrained than they did under the Obama administration, which, to be fair to the military, that there were genuine reasons why they did not like the Obama administration's constraints placed on them in terms of war fighting. But what this does mean, potentially, is that without any kind of check on the civilian side, and with a Secretary of Defense who is only three years removed from being in uniform himself, um, you could see the Defense Department making moves that winds up escalating a conflict in a way that neither they nor Trump anticipated. Um, so my concern is that we wind up in a, in a major sort of regional war, more so than we already are, not just in the Middle East, but that it wind, you know, it, North Korea is the most obvious place, but, um, but one can think of others as well. But when you say regional, you're not talking about the tri-state area or the Bay Area, No, right? sorry. By regional, I mean Northeast Asia. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Um, I, I'm sorry. That's right. Yes. By regional, I mean a region of the globe. And what if, and, and North Korean ICBMs are not, not in this maximalist vision? It's going to take a couple of years at least for North Korea's ICBMs to actually function to where they could hit the U.S., which, by the way, is another reason why this worries me, because I could see... Trump officials thinking they have a closing window and it's time to take action now. Um, And also I could see a situation where North Korea just continues to goad uh, the Trump administration until the point where they feel like they have to take some action. Otherwise, they look less and less credible. So that would be the maximalist. I guess the other maximalist situation is one in which you see a large, heavy U.S. ground presence in Syria. As the decided as the only way to eliminate ISIS, and there were indications, you know, when when Trump launched tomahawks into Syria, that there were folks like McMaster, who was the national security advisor, uh, who were inclined to go in that direction. I actually think North Korea is more likely. That's one maximalist outcome. The other maximalist outcome, by the way, is that Trump triggers a global a global recession um, by either withdrawing from NAFTA or taking some action with respect to NATO that actually causes people to genuinely question sort of the priors that they thought were going to hold during the Trump years. That's the worst-case scenario. Okay. 
The best case scenario is that essentially Trump continues to defer to Jim Mattis as Secretary of Defense, that Rex Tillerson actually learns at some point that he is Secretary of State and therefore should actually give the occasional speech in addition to, you know, acting as the Trump whisperer. They actually managed to staff up in terms of the deputy secretaries and undersecretaries and so on and so forth, for which they're woefully undermanned at this point. In the, this is and, the State Department. Yeah. Right. In the State Department. Not just State. It's State, Defense, Treasury. Mm-hmm. They, they are appallingly behind on this to the point where essentially, you know, deputy positions, um, which are the number twos at, at all these cabinet departments, are being run by permanent, you know, sort of acting people who are permanent civil service. Uh, which is uncomfortable for them and uncomfortable for the administration. Those get filled and essentially foreign policy. Essentially what winds up happening is that Trump becomes like the queen. He becomes the head of state without being the head of government with respect to foreign policy. So he goes out on summits and he engages in these gaudy trips and brings Melania with him and generates a lot of headlines and, and... other leaders recognize they have to say certain things to him and make certain promises. And then once he's gone, they just call up Mattis or Tillerson uh, or S- Steve Mnuchin and figure out what actually is going to happen. Um, that or Trump resigns. That, that's the other possible outcome. Well, you end on an up note there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> only at this moment could the resignation of the president be you know, the outcome we dream of. Thank you very, very much. Dan, it's so good to talk to you. It was great to talk to you as well, Virginia. This was a pleasure. So that's it for today's show. But one thing before we go, are you following us on Twitter? We are at Real Trumpcast. That's our handle, you know, because Trump's like at Real Donald Trump. We're clever like that. Trumpcast was produced today by Jordan Bell, sitting in for Jason DeLeon, who is making his way back from vacation. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer at the Panoply Network. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump, and Steve Waltine wrote the script for John today because every great presidential impersonator needs a great speechwriter impersonator, and John has found one in Steve Waltine. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>